You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Welcome to New City again. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the opportunity to share from the word with you this morning. Um, Last week, our brother Kyle preached a solid word on evangelism and how that's a a mark of a healthy church. I'd encourage you, if you uh, didn't get a chance to hear the sermon, check it out online. YouTube's where I went. It was great. Um, And Kyle preaches out of Matthew 28. And in fact, honestly, Matthew 28 is where you get most of our points for a healthy church. He talks about how we're going to go and share the gospel and make disciples. And I'm following up and saying, hey, this is the, this, the, the mark of a healthy church we're talking about today is discipleship. So as we look at nine marks of a healthy church, we're continuing our series looking at what evangelism produces, which is disciples. Now, discipleship is a term that has, it may be the most misunderstood mark in, in the nine marks of a healthy church. Um, many of us, myself included early in the past, have seen discipleship as almost something mythical in nature. We think, we read the gospels, we read the book of Acts, we're like, discipleship is Jesus and the apostles, three years at the feet of Jesus. How can I get that? Well, we have the Bible, but beyond that, we don't get that. Um, or we say, oh, discipleship is, is Paul and Timothy and, uh, Timothy walking with Paul through his missionary journeys. I want that. And the reality is, There may be some opportunities here and there, but most of us will never have that kind of relationship where we can spend three years or five years or several years on mission with one other person giving up everything else to follow the call of Jesus in in, uh, evangelism and church planning and gospel proclamation. We see these pictures in the gospels. We see these pictures in the book of Acts and throughout the scripture, and they're good biblical pictures. But then we go, how do I get that and have a day-to-day life? How can I have discipleship that helps me grow to love and know Jesus and go to school or be a parent or, or own a home if following Jesus and being discipled means I give up everything to follow him or I go, give everything to go on this missionary journey, how do I do it in my present life? So there's a lot of a lot of lack of clarity about what discipleship looks like in the church today. The main point I want everyone to walk away with today is that a healthy church disciples its people from cradle to grave and produces mature believers. A healthy church disciples its people from cradle to grave and produces mature believers. So real quick, disciples are followers of Jesus. That's Christian discipleship is following Jesus as your savior striving to become more like him by the power of the Holy Spirit. A Christian disciple is someone who's heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that they are separated from God because of their sin, and God is infinitely holy, and because of his holiness and their sin, there is no way for us to be reconciled to God, except God made a way in the person of Jesus, God the Son, who died in our place, who paid the price that we could not pay, that we may be reconciled to God through his shed blood and through faith in him. So for a Christian whose Jesus is their savior, they're striving to walk with him and become more like him, that is a Christian disciple. 
But as we talk about discipleship and as we get into our text in 1 Peter 3, if you want to start flipping there, feel free. It'll take us a few minutes to get there. But I want to define a few terms to make sure we're on the same page. Because like I said, discipleship is very misunderstood. So discipleship in your life, as a disciple, it means we're following Jesus day by day. We are seeking him through his word and prayer. We're seeking to obey his commands to the best of our understanding and ability. Trusting him and walking with him in hope of becoming more and more like him. Discipleship is not just me and Jesus. Discipleship is also us. Discipleship is helping others follow Jesus in the sin, chaos, and mess of life from the cradle to the grave. What does that mean? It means discipleship is evangelistic. We, for those of us who our parents were children, in the, his parents were in the faith, or even got sent to VBS once or twice, which is my case, um, discipleship happens before salvation. It's people pouring into you. In fact, I'd say everybody here had some Christian, if they're in faith, that at some point pointed them to Jesus. That's discipleship. It happens before salvation. It's people investing in you, sharing Jesus with you, loving you, and helping you to come to know him. But then it happens after salvation as well. It happens through primarily the local church. It happens through different aspects of that over the years. It happens as I have a 20-month-old right now, and discipleship is we sing a song together. We read a little pieces of past scripture together. We we read a little Bible story with him, and then we sing a song again, and that's bedtime. But we do it every night. And sometimes as you get older, you go into children's ministry, and they teach you the stories. You go into youth ministry. You go into college campus ministry. You have intentional discipleship with older students. You go into, you leave college, and you're like, holy cow, that was a very awesome experience. I came to Christ in college. I was discipled by my campus minister and my pastor. I'm very thankful for both those men. Um, but then I got out of it. I'm like, what do I do now? I'm, I'm not having those relationships anymore. I was befuddled. I'm like, I spent probably 10 years trying to figure out how to have my pastor disciple me like a college student, not realizing I wasn't a college student anymore. Discipleship happens through the local church. It happens, yes, in parachurch ministry um, and in other ministries, youth ministry, uh, marriage contexts of ministries, but it does, it's for a specific time and a specific context. But it find, discipleship finds its fullness in life through the local church over a lifetime, from childhood, uh, Lord willing, with parents discipling them and investing in them, all the way to old age. It's from cradle to grave. Why is that? Because we raise our children the way we want them to go. Everyone does. Everyone does. You want to invest in your child and hope that they come to Christ or they come to whatever you believe as well. But discipleship in the church continues at early childhood and continues through the rest of the life. But discipleship takes a few things. I'm going to be very brief here for our time. It takes intentionality. Discipleship doesn't happen by accident. When I got out of college, I was like, okay, I need discipleship. What do I do? And I was like, I don't have these people right over me who are investing in me through campus ministry. And it took a couple years to find rhythms that worked for discipleship. So it takes intentionality. And really, it takes recognizing that the church is probably already offering them in ways we're not expecting. 
Discipleship takes humility. When you enter a relationship with others and you're like, I'm a sinner who needs Jesus, guess what? You have to be humble enough to recognize that they may see your sin and call you on it. You have to have the willingness to be humble and to be wrong, to receive and to give. Discipleship takes vulnerability. It takes honesty and weakness. You have to be willing to lay it out there and say, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to follow. I, I feel over my head and I need help and receiving that help. Discipleship takes time, studying the word, talking with one another, building relationships, praying. It takes a willingness to trust God that these people are for me. In the church, discipleship happens in the church. The church is people who love you, who are for you and want you to grow in Christ. But discipleship means as they talk to you about hard things in your life, you trust God that they love you and want the best for you. And it takes the entire church. Everyone's involved in discipleship. New City, New City is a church, I'm about to get into the ways we do this, but New City is a church where everyone makes disciples. It's not just the pastors, it's not just the staff, it's not just the adults. Everyone is involved in some way in discipleship at New City. What does discipleship look like? If you've been to the newcomers lunches or, or uh, next steps classes, this is gonna sound very familiar. Um, it's be with Jesus. We want our church to have personal de devotions, to have worship services, to have prayer gatherings, times where they gather together in the name of Jesus, invest in a relationship with one another, and point one another to him where they hear the word, where they pray, where they meditate on Jesus and be with him. Next, we want the church to be changed by Jesus. We do that at New City, particularly through D groups, which are discipleship groups. They're three to five people of the same sex. They come together, they ask hard questions, they study the scripture together, they hold each other accountable and help one another grow. We also do villages, groups of anywhere from uh, eight to I think we had 30 in one of the villages this, this, this uh, semester. Wow, um, that's a lot, it wouldn't fit in my house. But villages are a place where you go and you invest in a relationship, you serve one another in love, you share what's going on in your heart and life, and you're shaped through that. And the last thing we do is equip classes. These are things we offer um, sporadically, but they have, we have had one on lamentation, which is like crying out to God about sorrow. We've had one about how to teach the word for women and men. We've had one on, uh, I believe, like disciples, We've taught, uh, disciplines, Christian disciplines. Um, we've talked about, we've had one on how to counsel others. So equip classes are ways we want people to be changed by Jesus. And finally, we want to be on mission with Jesus. So be with Jesus, be changed by Jesus, be on mission with Jesus. This is New City, right? So we have serve teams on Sunday morning. We are, we're doing mission trips that are coming up here. Uh, personal evangelism, intentional discipleship, and even service opportunities in the community. This last Wednesday night, uh, roughly eight of us got to go to Salt and Light and go volunteer over there at Salt and Light Campus, which is a, which is a uh, non-for-profit Christian organization that serves the community and helps the least of these. They liter I literally live within three blocks of one. I didn't think I was supposed to go. And they're like, actually, if you come buy your groceries here, it helps us a lot. Oh, well, if you go to Salt and Light and buy your groceries, you get good costs and it helps the ministry. That's an easy one, easy way to serve your community right there. Um, so that's how we do discipleship. We be with Jesus, we be changed by Jesus, we be on mission with Jesus. But what does discipleship produce? What are we doing here? What's the goal? What's the mission here? Because we don't just do these things 
just to do them. Discipleship produces believers growing in maturity in Christ-likeness. Discipleship produces believers that are growing in maturity in Christ-likeness. This morning, we're going to look, as I said, on 1 Peter 3, 14 through 17, um, as the example of a mature believer and how, they, and how we get there through discipleship. Let's uh, stand for the reading of the word, if we could, out of reverence for the word. And it's 1 Peter 3, 14 through 17. It says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no, no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than for doing evil. The word of the Lord. Go ahead and sit. I do want to say this real quick. This whole, se- this whole segment of Peter's letter is about suffering. The context of this sermon is suffering. Why do I bring that up? Because suffering reveals. Suffering refines. And suffering is something we're promised if we walk with Jesus or if you just live on this world and you don't walk with Jesus, you will suffer eventually. Peter is pointing out what a mature disciple looks like in the midst of suffering. So first, we're going to look at three points here today. Our first point is, a mature believer honors Christ the Lord as holy. A mature believer honors Christ the Lord as holy. Peter says um, in verse 14, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So he starts by saying, If you suffer for righteousness. Now, the Christians in his time were being persecuted and suffering for the cause of Christ. Whether it was Jewish persecution or pagan pagan persecution, they were being persecuted against. They were suffering for the cause of Jesus. And Peter says something here that's pretty remarkable. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Nor be troubled. Do not fear those who cause you suffering for being zealous for good works. Peter calls the church not to fear those who cause them to suffer. This seems counterintuitive. I don't know how many people over the years have learned not to touch the stove by burning themselves. They got burned, it hurt, they're scared of touching it again. You get scared of touching a fire, you get scared of a big dog who barks a lot at you as a child because you get snapped at. Or a small dog. My grandma had a chihuahua that bited us. I was always terrified. Peter calls the church not to fear those who cause them to suffer, though that is counterintuitive. But Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls the church to fear rightly. Instead of fear of persecutors, Peter calls the church to honor Christ the Lord as holy. What is he meaning? We can move too, pa- fit too fast past this. Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. But in your hearts, instead of fear, honor to magnify, to set apart Jesus the Lord. It's first honor, set apart, magnify in your heart Jesus, period. Make, excuse me, pardon me, I'm sorry. Make much of Jesus in your heart. Honor him, 
Magnify him. Make him the center of your heart. But he doesn't just say Jesus. He says Jesus the Lord. What he's saying is a New Testament word for God. He's saying honor Jesus who is Lord and God, who is Savior, who is God the Son. Honor Jesus Christ in your heart as holy, as set apart, as pure, as worthy of your worship. Now he's saying all that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he's also referencing Isaiah 8. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 8.13, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Peter is saying, and honor Christ Jesus, God, as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Fear not meaning scary movie. Fear meaning reverence, awe, respect. He is your king. You follow him. Your fear is not of these people who might persecute you, but of failing the one that you love. My son has a way. He likes to like jump at me. And I'm supposed to catch him, right? I have a fear out of love of missing the catch, of failing my son. I don't want to. We, this, this reverence, awe, this reverent fear, and the word is fear in Hebrew, for God is not one of terror as, a, as a, uh, an enemy of God, but as a reverent awe of a child who knows that their father can do everything. The most powerful man, the most powerful well, for a child, the most powerful being in existence is dad or mom. You know, there's something wonderful about that. But Peter says the church, let Christ be who is magnified, honored, set apart in your heart. Let him be your fear. Um, referencing Isaiah, let your fear be instead honoring Christ in your heart. Peter calls the church not to fear persecution, persecution or suffering, for the faith, but instead to fear the Lord and honor him. Jesus is worthy of our hearts being set on him instead of our fears. For where our heart is, there our lives will be also. Where our treasure is, our hearts will be also. Where our heart is, our lives will trend toward. Do you, do you, do you have any, I'm gonna say family members for most of us, who are very fearful? Anybody have fearful family members? I do. Okay, we got a couple of us here. You, you watch over time, fearful people get more and more fearful. Yeah. It's terrifying. I have an aunt who I love dearly who's a, who is a sister in the Lord, but she's scared about everything to the point that she's trying to watch out for every rock that Alexander may trip on and warn me about everything that might hurt him. And it's a big world. And there's a lot of things. If we walk in fear, if fear is what rules our lives, we will be focused on it and we will live fearful lives. But if we're focused on Jesus, honoring and magnifying him, we will, through Jesus, live honoring lives. Our lives will follow our hearts. If our hearts are set on him, our lives will naturally reflect Christ. What does that mean? Well, how many times have I already talked about my kid this morning? I love my kid. I talk about what I love. You all love things, and you talk about them, whether they be... Um, my wife loves handbags and shoes, and she will talk about handbags and shoes with you. Um, other people love sports, and they will talk about sports with you forever. Other people are fat. Whatever you're passionate about, whatever your heart loves, we naturally speak about what we love. What Peter is calling us to here is magnify Christ in your heart, honor him as God as holy, 
love the Lord, speak out of that. Let that love drive your life. A mature believer, even in suffering, a mature believer honors Christ the Lord as holy in their heart. What does this look like in our day-to-day lives? How do we get here? Um, first, how do, what does it look like? In our lives, it means we don't live fear of a life of fear. It doesn't mean we're stupid. There is a difference between stupidity and living fearfully. Oftentimes, people think that's a line and they should just do whatever. No, don't, do, don't be stupid. That's like biblical wisdom here. Throughout the Bible, repeatedly, you're taught, don't be stupid. Like, that's what the Proverbs is all about, guys. Don't be stupid. Like, that's summing up the Proverbs for you. You should still read it. It's a lot better than that. Um, but we don't live a life of fear. We don't. We're not called to. Yes, there are 10 million things that could happen. It doesn't mean they will. If we honor Christ the Lord is holy, we know he is for us and he loves us. So we don't have to be afraid. What can they do to us if he has us? What else does it mean for our lives if we, if we want to honor Christ as the Lord is holy? It means that we live a life following him and obeying his commands. It means we make choices that honor Jesus, love Jesus, and strive to make him known. It means that sometimes we choose to suffer for the cause of Christ. For some of you, that will mean joining a church planning team and going to a town you don't know with people that you love in the church, that you want together, committed together to go plant a church that people may hear the gospel. But that does mean you're moving away from family, away from friends, away from loved ones, and that is suffering. It's real. For others, it means you might stay here instead of going back to family or instead of going to the best job to to get plugged in at New City and invest in the relationships here and the next generation of students that come through. Because the great news at New City and campus churches in general, and I've spent over a decade now with campus churches, is you get people cycling through. You get to invest in and love and care for a lot of people over the years. But it looks like to honor Christ the Lord as holy is choosing to live in such a way that makes him known. How do we get here? How do we move from where we're at, where I talk a lot more about my son than I talk about Jesus? It takes discipleship. It takes intentional investment in one another's lives. It takes intentional encouragement of brothers and sisters in Christ. It takes intentional uh, examples of others, and it takes intentional encouragement of others. Here's the thing. Discipleship, very clearly want you to know, discipleship is not a top-down thing. Discipleship is a mutual upbuilding. It is a mutual development, encouragement, and love. If anybody ever, ever offers to disciple you, and has nothing to gain from you, get out of that relationship because it's unhealthy. Jesus is the only one who is perfect. And his apostles and disciples, he loved them, he rebuked them, he encouraged them, and he gained from them love and encouragement. Even that relationship was a relationship. He didn't get made more holy like the rest of us do, but he was still blessed by that. But through discipleship, through time together in, whether it's men's groups, women's groups, D groups, villages, um, as relationships are made and people are invested in, 
Our hearts can be shaped in these ways as we encourage one another to do so. Here's the thing about suffering. Suffering is so, it strips away all the vain silliness of life and helps us focus on what's important. That's oftentimes where we're going to see the validity of our faith. What do I mean? Jesus said in the parable of the soils that the, the gospel seed will fall upon rocks and it will spring up and look good for a while, but then temptation and trials will come and it will fade away. Suffering is a way that God uses to show us our own hearts. So how do we get to a heart that honors Christ the Lord is holy? We do it together in discipleship, investing and encouraging one another to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. But that heart is not only a heart. We want to honor Christ the Lord as holy, but it brings something out of us. The heart that honors Christ the Lord as holy produces something. The next point we're going to look at this morning is the mature believer lives with hope. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. A heart that honors Christ the Lord as holy will produce a life of hope. When you think of hope, what do you think of? Anybody ever say, I hope I get an A? I hope I win the lottery? I hope I don't get pulled over for speeding? I'm guessing most of us have said that once or twice. Um, when we talk about hope in English, we talk about this vague dream. We talk about this vague aspiration. But we don't really mean any kind of certainty. But when the Bible talks about hope, it talks about an absolute confidence. It's a hope that is set upon the one it is in. When Peter talks about hope, he's talking about if, I hope that if I jump down, the, the floor catches me, right? I have confidence in the floor. Peter is saying, when he says, hope in the Lord, the absolute confidence of the believer is in God's faithfulness toward them his love toward them, that he cares for them, that they are his, no matter what comes. So that's the hope that is to be produced as our hearts honor Christ the Lord. Now, Peter calls the church to always be prepared, beginning of verse 15 here, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for this hope. Always. Peter wants us to always be thinking, whatever relationship, whatever situation we're in, how to share Jesus is a natural part of that day. Whether you're in my situation where you have 38 hours a week with somebody else in a room smaller than two, uh, two rows of chairs, or whether you're meeting with dozens of people throughout the week, Peter's call to us is always be prepared, always be focused upon how to share Jesus with anyone who asks. You could call this the introvert style of evangelism. It doesn't ask you to go bang on doors. It doesn't ask you to go preach on the quad. It's like live a life of hope, and then as people ask, share Jesus with them. Extroverts can do this too, guys. Just saying. I'm just an introvert, and this gives me great hope. Um, he says, always be prepared. 
Because as we do that, as we think about that, we're focused on Christ and sharing the gospel with others. Now he says, always be ready to give a defense. This is, the word for this is give an answer. Defense is the word, the word in Greek is what we get apologetics from. So it's always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter wants the church to be ready to talk about the reason for their hope. Now, why? Because a mature believer lives in such a way that honors Christ the Lord as holy, lives with hope, and that hope, especially in the format of suffering, looks so very different than what anyone has seen. Have you seen someone live with hope in suffering? In severe suffering, they cling to Christ. There's something powerful about their testimony at that time. When a mature believer lives with hope, it gives power to their witness. But what does this hope look like, right? This isn't just, yay God, I'm happy because I know God is for me. Though that is true. This hope has teeth, it has grit. The hope is first, as I said, it's in Jesus Christ. The hope of the believer is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's in the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that God is with them. It's the hope in the resurrection, both Jesus and their own. It's the hope, the confidence, and the identity that they have as children of God, that in all things they are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. It's the hope that no matter what happens with the cancer or, or, the, or the pain or the suffering or the sickness or, or, the, or even in death, that they are Christ's and he loves them. Believers suffer differently because of this hope that Jesus is with us and loves us. And when they do, other people ask. It becomes it shows the power of Jesus in ways that others cannot simply dismiss. It's one thing to have an apologetic from the term you may be familiar with and have arguments to argue the existence of God. It's another to suffer and trust in God and for someone to see that and say, I may not agree with you, but you believe what you say. There's a power in that. Now Peter reminds the church to give a defense and answer those who would ask about their hope. But he instructs the church on how to do that because Peter knows there's people like me around um, and some of you. He says, give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Um, when I first came to Christ, apologetics was huge in the early 2000s. And... Uh, there was a lot of very young, reformed apologetics guys who are very smart and who very much wanted to argue about everything, even with each other. Like it was this just very unhealthy dynamic. And Peter addresses that. He says, when people ask you, why are you hoping in suffering? Why is it when you've lost your home for the gospel because somebody burned it down? Or you've lost your health because... You, you aren't able to get the help you need? What, what if you've lost family members who've rejected you for the gospel? How do you have hope? And they point to the power of Jesus. They're they are called to do that with gentleness and respect. 
The way we respond to those asking about our hope in Jesus matters. The way we respond to questions about him and the gospel impact the person asking the questions. Once again, Peter calls for gentleness and respect. Have any of you known, I'm just curious because maybe this was a 2000s thing, the argumentative Christian who wants to argue with you about doctrine and uh, apologetics? Just a handful, wow. Okay, it's mostly gone now, it feels like. This second service, it was just a handful last. I'm thrilled that's something that needs to die in the bash bin of history. Um, But we're called to respond with gentleness and respect to share the gospel hope in such a way that the only offense we allow be the gospel itself, not our attitude or demeanor. What do I mean? The gospel is offensive to the lost in several ways, right? The God, it, Paul talks about how the Jew and the Gentile are offended by the gospel. But the gospel says you are all far worse sinners than you know, and God is infinitely more holy than you know, and you have no way to him except the way he gives. That's offensive in a lot of ways to people. Now it says that God gave away by dying for you. God the Son died for you that you may be reconciled to him. Like the gospel gives hope. But we want the only offense to be the gospel itself, not our attitudes and hearts. We want to honor people even as they, as they ask questions and share the good news with them. In a very real way, we want to not have an attitude that we are right and they are wrong when we share Jesus with others, like trying to win an argument, but instead we're trying to win them to Jesus as his ambassadors. Because in a very real way, guys, in the end, Jesus is right and we're all wrong. That's it. We're all wrong. We all need God. We get it through Jesus. And we're inviting others to come to what we've discovered. How do we get here? How do we get to living with hope? We get to living with hope through, once again, discipleship, encouraging one another, um, having people in our lives who know us well enough they can talk to us when we're suffering and encourage us in hope. I would say that one of the worst possible things that's happened in communication with this is text messaging. It's really hard to give someone hope in a text message. There's only so many emojis you can put in one before it's all emojis, right? Um, Giving people hope is an embodied thing. I'm not saying you can't do it through text. Lord bless you if you can. You're a lot better than I am. But when we are present with people in their suffering, when we are invested in a relationship with them, when we are walking through the messiness of day-to-day life with them, we're able to help them hold fast to the hope, find the hope, develop that hope in their soul in Christ in powerful ways. And in a mature believer, we want to look for that. As you look for discipleship, as you look for relationships, maybe instead of saying this guy has all the answers or this guy is the pastor or whatever else, it's, hey, is this person honoring Christ the Lord is holy? Are they living in such a way that their hope is obvious? Maybe that's somebody to say, hey, can I sit down and buy you a coffee or other beverage of choice and learn how to do this? Because we do it together. Now we've seen that a mature believer honors Christ the Lord, Lord as holy and lives with hope. Now we will see how they walk in integrity. Walk in integrity. A mature believer walks in integrity. This is verses 16 and 17. Having a good conscience 
so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than doing evil. Wrong side. Different service. Okay. Um, Peter calls the church to live with a good conscience. Conscience being with knowledge. Uh, Paul talks about the conscience in Romans 2, uh, rebuking and exhorting us, uh, excusing and, and convicting us throughout our lives. It's that voice in our heart that says, this is good, this is bad. We know it can be seared, we know it can be ignored, but Peter calls believers to live, in, to live with integrity, with a good conscience, in such a way when someone tries to slander the believer, the slander themselves are put to shame because of the believer's righteous living. Not only that, but the hope that is shared by the believer is strengthened by their life of integrity. Their lives show what they believe and what they believe what they're saying. They're living what they preach. So Peter says, live a life of integrity. A mature disciple hopes in Jesus, uh, honors Christ the Lord as holy in their heart, live lives of hope in Christ, even in suffering, and live lives of integrity in the Lord, for the Lord. And when they do that, they are walking in faith with Christ. They're walking in the midst of suffering in ways that honor God, even to the point that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Here's the thing. Peter is writing to the early church. Now, the early church was called atheists at times by, by the Romans. Yeah, they're called atheists, believe it or not, because they rejected the Roman gods. They said, there's one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's one God. We, don't, we do not worship the Roman gods. They, they were considered atheists. And they would be slandered as atheists because they did not believe in the Roman gods. They did not walk in the way the Romans did and the way that the Jews did. And they would be slandered for their faith. And in the end, people would, would talk bad about them, attack them, say malicious things about them. And it had to be that they were walking in integrity that when they would slander the Christian, the people who knew them knew there was no weight to those words. It's one thing for someone to tell the truth about someone. It's a whole nother for somebody to intentionally say things that aren't true to hurt somebody. But if the people are walking in integrity, those words have no stick. You know, maybe you've heard of throwing spaghetti at the wall to see if it's done. Some of you have, some of you haven't, I'm sure. Um, it's one of those things they say, I'll throw spaghetti at the wall when it sticks, it's done. People are throwing slander at people to see if it sticks, but if you're walking with a good conscience and an integrity, that slander doesn't stick. And everybody around them knows it. They may not like the person, but they know they walk in what they believe. Peter finishes this text the same way he started throughout the subject, looking at suffering. He says it's better to suffer doing good, if it be God's will, than for doing evil. The reality is suffering will happen to you. It either already has or it will in the future. Whether that's loss of family, whether that's sickness, whether that's uh, persecution, whether that's any number of things. Um, family members rejecting you because of your faith, whether that's uh, 
friends that you love turning their back on Christ, whether that's, uh, you know, your, your dog dying or your house burned down. Suffering happens. I don't want to be flippant about it, but I also don't want to ignore the fact it happens. How we suffer matters, and the suffering, the very suffering helps refine us, help us see where we're weak and where we're strong and where we need to grow. The most difficult point of suffering I've been through is that when we had a foster child. He was a little boy. We had him from five months to 20 months. And ours was a foster care success. We were the foster parents. You sign up knowing you're going to lose your son or your child. It's in, the, it's in the documents. It's in everything. We had him for 20 months. We raised him from basically five months old to 20 months. And uh, that's basically the age my son is now. And uh, this little boy would come up to me, grab my knee, and go, my daddy, my dada, my daddy. And, well, ours was a foster care success in that mom got her life back on track and she regained her rights. And I'm thankful for that. I want that to be clear. But that little boy leaving us right before nap time when he really needed a nap brutalized my soul. I suffered. I, I, I wept like a, like a baby. I wept, no, I wept like an adult. <laughs> Babies weep for all kinds of reasons. Adults weep when, when they're hurting. Um, I suffered. My wife suffered. My wife's like, I don't know how to deal with you right now. I'm like, I know you don't. I don't either. Um, but it helped so much to see where my hope was, to see where my joy was, to see where my, my uh, what, what in my heart mattered. It helped refine me, and even to this day, helps me be a better dad to my son now. Um, so God uses suffering. How we suffer matters. God, by his grace, kept me in the midst of that suffering that I think I was quoting Job, like the Lord gave and the Lord took take away. Blessed be his name. That's as far as I could get at that time, and that's okay. Sometimes just holding fast to the fact that the Lord is God is all we need in the midst of suffering. And then it's our friends to come with, but beside us as we're like, the Lord gave and the Lord took away and the Lord is good. And they're like, and the Lord loves you. And you're like, oh, I needed that. I needed that. I need to remember his love. That's what I needed to be reminded of. So how do we get from where we're at now to living lives where we suffer for the cause of Christ in a way that magnifies him, where we honor Christ the Lord as holy, where we live with hope, and where we walk in integrity. First, get plugged into a local church, guys. If you're here and you're at New City, uh, get plugged into a newcomer's class, next steps class, become a member. Get plugged in, get committed to your people, and let them be committed to you. Disciple others and invest in the relationship with them. Now, that doesn't mean you have to meet up for three hours once a week to read the Bible and pray. It may look like that. It may look very different. It may be you meet up with somebody once every two weeks and pray together and uh, hold each other accountable for something. It may be any number of things. It may just be that, you know, you hang out with somebody because you like them and you talk about Jesus and what's going on in life. Um, another way you can get there is get involved in a D group or village here in New City. 
uh, get together with three or four young men or young ladies separately um, in, in the church and reach out to the elders, reach out through the link I'm going to show here in about five, ten minutes, and sign up to get resources to better want, disciple one another in Christ. Get involved in a village and experience all the chaos and craziness that living life with people who aren't just like you is like. Um, it's amazing how chaotic children become in a village. And I was always like, okay, I can handle this. And then it's my kid, and I'm like, oh my goodness, he's driving me nuts. Um, I love him to death, but the hardest thing in leading a village or being a part of a village is cute kids who are like, ah, because everybody's watching. So D groups and villages, get, be willing. Here's the thing. If you want to be discipled, we have ways we do that built into the church, right? D groups, villages, um, worship gatherings, prayer gatherings, um, equip classes, mission opportunities. These are all ways to be discipled. If you want more one-on-one discipleship, be bold. Ask somebody. A young man in the church came to me a year and a half ago, two years ago, and goes, hey, I'd love to get together once a week and read the word and pray and encourage each other and be discipled. I said, let's do it. He's one of the very few who've actually asked. Um, I've asked a few people to do things like that over the years, and we have. Um, but get involved in relationships and expect them to look unique to the people. If we think we are going to have the same relationship with our disciple maker, uh, uh, with the person investing in us as, as Peter, James, and John had with Jesus, guys, the people we're in, that are investing in us are not Jesus. They're sinners too. Um, don't let don't let a beautiful picture in the scriptures of discipleship keep you from what you may receive. And pour your life into others. Here's the thing. Once again, discipleship is not top-down. It's not like, okay, I know the Bible better than you, so you need to come to me. If that's the attitude, stay away from the person. There, there's very little value there in somebody who's conceited. But where people come and love each other and sharpen each other and invest in each other. There's a mutual upbuilding. It's iron sharpening iron, men sharpening men, women, children sharpening women. Dude, I get the pleasure of hanging out with our next, with our next city village and like they sharpen me. They do, guys, I'm, I'm serious. Our six-year-old, our six-year-olds to, to, to high schoolers sharpen me because I get to sit through sermon evaluation and Noel asks, what did he say today? And they're like, uh, and I'm like, okay, I need to learn that. Um, there's both a humbling, but also they're like, we need to follow Jesus. And it's not hard. And I'm like, I need to remember that. It's not hard. It just, take, it just takes commitment. These kids sharpen us. So in conclusion today, I want to encourage all of us to invest in others around you. Help them grow in Jesus. Get plugged into a church. Think outside the box in this. You may not be in the same life situation or age, but you can help each other grow as disciples. Um, And I really, truly want to encourage everyone to just commit yourself now so that when suffering comes, you're walking with Christ. Set your heart on Jesus as your Lord. Share, live out that hope and share it with others as they ask. Why do you have hope? My hope is in Jesus.
for the forgiveness of my sins and the hope of eternal life. And live lives with, lives with integrity to the glory of God. As we do this, as we walk as disciples of Christ, we will make disciples of Christ. We will see our communities, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our families, our, our apartments changed to the glory of God through the gospel. And as we press forward, let's do so with, inte- with integrity, but also with intentionality, just loving people and pointing them to Christ. Let us bow our heads and pray. Lord, please help us to honor Christ the Lord is holy, that he would be our fear. That we have a reverent awe for him that is greater than all the forces of this earth. Lord, help us to live in such a way that reflects what C.T. Studd said, that... uh, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ to last. Lord, help us to invest in discipleship relationships and be invested in through them. We all have so much to gain from relationship with one another. Lord, I pray that we would live out as a church our hope that is in Christ that we'd walk with integrity in such a way that the gospel is not defamed because of our decisions, but the gospel is empowered as it goes forward by our, our good conscience and integrity. Lord, I pray that you would do the work in the hearts of those who are here that you have to do today. In Jesus' name, amen. Here at New City, we like to respond in three ways. First, we reflect. We're going to spend a few minutes. We're going to bow our heads here in a minute or two and just reflect upon what we heard today. Is there something you need to do in response to the word? Because we don't want to just be hearers. We want to be doers of the word. Where do you need to invest? Like, for instance, where do you need to intentionally invest in discipleship? Is there someone you need to invite in your life to walk with you and Jesus? Do you need to get involved in a D group or a village? Do you need to get plugged into another relationship? Just pray that the Lord would make that clear. After we take a few minutes to reflect, we want to remember. We remember in the Lord's Supper. We take from either of the two stations the bread, we dip it in the wine, and we remember Christ's death. His body broken, his blood poured out on the cross for us that we may be reconciled to God. And we take and eat that. And we invite anyone to come who's placed their faith in Christ and take the Lord's Supper with us this morning. And finally, we rehearse. We always end our service as a dress rehearsal for heaven, worshiping God and making Him known, singing and making a joyful noise together. Yes, that means people like me who can't sing can still make a joyful noise. We encourage everyone to sing loud, sing proud, because we worship God. We worship Him together. So let's bow our heads and take a few minutes to reflect.